But I'm just going to jump in here and begin at Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, where we read, "The, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, isn't it amazing that right now, some 2,000 years after Jesus lived and died, we're here together on a Sunday morning, and not just us, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Christians all over the world are getting together to talk about and to look at the life of and to live the life of Jesus Christ. What other person from ancient history do they do that about? Julius Caesar? I don't think so. Uh, Napoleon? Alexander the Great? No academics study their lives in dusty big books that nobody reads much anymore. But right now here, we're talking about Jesus, and we're talking about him from the Gospel of Mark, from the world's best-selling book, from the book that's speaking to the generations across the generations. And here we are together looking at this amazing life. Now, what's remarkable about this is the life of Jesus speaks to us today, but I would say it only speaks to us the way it should if we really understand who Jesus is. And isn't that the most important question for us to consider? Who is this Jesus? I mean, you all know the name. Some of you have even seen movies about his life. But is it really true? Who is this Jesus? And to really find out who Jesus is, we've got to come to the Bible. We've got to come to the document itself. And so here we find in this first verse, the Gospel of Mark, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you realize that right there starting off, Mark tells us who Jesus is? Now, you you might scratch your head to begin with and wonder why there's even four Gospels. I mean, why four? First of all, why why isn't there just one? Or why aren't there a lot more? Well, God decided that there needed to be four different sources, four different voices telling us who Jesus is. And they all speak together. They all speak in harmony. But each one of them comes from a little bit different perspective and gives us a little bit different vision of who Jesus is. Not that they contradict each other, but they complement each other beautifully. If you're still having trouble understanding this why the four Gospels thing, look, you guys who have the big home entertainment systems, Now look, the speaker on your television set, that would work just fine, right? You could just use that. But oh no, that's not good enough for you. First you get the big subwoofer, right? And then you get the big speakers on the side. And then you start doing the surround sound thing with the speakers that go down the room, right? So that when the the jet fighter goes over you, it really sounds like it's coming from behind you and streaking over. Now, once you've got the whole system set up and running, you know why you have all those speakers, right? And somebody else comes in and they just say, listen, just the speaker on your television, that's good enough, right? You could do that. And you say, well, you know, that works. But if you listen to it the way I've got it set up, you understand why we have all these speakers. It's the same way with the Gospels. We understand why God gave us four different voices when we really understand how each one of them has a little particular thing that that God appointed them to contribute to the story of who Jesus is. One of the beautiful ways that this has been illustrated throughout the history of the church, you go into these cathedrals in in Europe and such, and you'll see this motif all over the place. You'll find it repeated in paintings on walls. You'll find it repeated in stained glass windows. You'll find it repeated in carvings, uh, sometimes on the outside of the building, sometimes inside of the building. And it's a motif of four different figures that represent the evangelists. First of all, you have the figure of a man, and the man will be shown holding or writing in a book. Then you have the figure of an eagle, and the eagle will be perched on top of a book. 
And then you'll have the figure of an angel. And the angel will, or excuse me, not an angel, a lion. And, and the, the lion will have a book. And then finally you have the, the, the fourth figure, the figure of an uh, ox or of a, of a calf. And that figure will have the book. And you wonder, well, what is this? Why do they have a, a little carving of an ox with a book? Is this a literacy program for domestic farm animals or something like that? No, no. Each one of those are representing each one of the four evangelists taking it from the faces of the cherubim as it's represented in Revelation chapter 4. And the four different faces of the cherubim, early Christians latch on and say, well, that's speaking to us, and it illustrates the four different angles that the Gospels take. I mean, the, the Gospel of Matthew, that's like a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the fulfillment of prophecy. And then you have the Gospel of John. That's like Jesus, the man from heaven, and the eagle flies so high, it's the heavenly bird. And so it's the Gospel of the man from heaven. And then you have the Gospel of Luke, where it presents Jesus as the perfect man. And there he is. You have the figure of the man with the book. And then you have the ox or the calf. And it has the book. And what is it? It represents the Gospel of Mark. Because in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is represented as God's servant, as God's workman. The Gospel of Mark shows Jesus as busy, moving from one event to another quickly, working, serving God. So John, excuse me, Mark begins his Gospel pretty abruptly here. You see it in verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, if we're asking this question, who is Jesus? We should begin just with what he says right there. First of all, he gives them four specific names or titles in verse 1. Did you see them all? The first one is Jesus. The second one is Christ. And the third one is the Son of God. I said four. Actually, it's three right there. We see the first one is Jesus. That's a name, right? That was Jesus' name. His first name wasn't Jesus and his last name Christ. He didn't get his mail addressed to him as Mr. Christ. Christ is a title. Jesus was his name. And that day, they didn't give people last names. He was just identified by his first name, Jesus. And it was a common name in that day. In other words, Jesus was a real person. He wasn't some phantom. He wasn't some figment of somebody's imagination. He's not like Zeus or Apollos or one of these mythical gods of Roman or Greek mythology. No, 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 no. He was a real person. He's Jesus. Secondly, he's Jesus Christ, or should we say Jesus, you could say Jesus the Christ, because the name Christ, or the title Christ, simply means Messiah. Here Mark is speaking to his Jewish readers, and he's saying, this is the Messiah, this is the anointed one, because that's what the word Christ means. He says, this is the one, the Savior, the fulfiller of all prophecy. He's the one, the Savior of all men. Jesus Christ, and did you notice the third name or title for Jesus there in verse 1? The Son of God. Now, that means more than just God created him or anything. I know that the Son of God is a unique title. It means that Jesus is the unique Son of God. He has a unique relationship with God as Father. Not only is he the Son of God, he is God the Son, as it will demonstrate in just the next few verses. Let's just jump into that, verse 2, where he says, and here's the abrupt beginning here, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Isn't this interesting? At the beginning of the story of who Jesus is, Mark doesn't even talk about Jesus. He says, I want to tell you about his advance man. 
I want to tell you about the guy who was in charge of getting the way prepared for Jesus, this man named John, who we often call John the Baptist. Now, this man, John the Baptist, was especially a prophesied messenger of God. That's why Mark applies these passages from the Old Testament to the ministry of John the Baptist. Look at it here. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Isn't that beautiful? This man was going to be a unique messenger of God. Now, you know what's amazing about this? Except for some very rare exceptions, the prophetic voice in Israel had been silent for hundreds of years. Oh, you open up the pages of the Old Testament, you have marvelous prophets. You have Elijah, you have Elisha, you have Malachi, you have all these tremendous prophets. The prophet Isaiah, the prophet Hosea, the, the prophet Jeremiah, you have all these tremendous prophets in the Old Testament. But for hundreds of years, the voice of the prophets had been absolutely silent. The Jewish people recognized that. That God hasn't sent us a messenger. God hasn't sent us a spokesman. Now, some of them thought that God hadn't sent them a spokesman because God had nothing more to say to them. But that wasn't the reason at all. God was just waiting for the time to arise, so the time become right, and now he sends my messenger. The, the prophetic voice is no more silent. And now John comes like a meteor on the scene, and he comes into the occasion and says, my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And then later on in verse 3, it says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That is a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 40 that the uh, writer Mark here quotes in his gospel. And it's really remarkable how he uses this occasion. Because what this really means to prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, it refers to an ancient custom that they had. And the ancient custom was simply this. That whenever a king, whenever a great dignitary was going to go a certain place, he would have an advanced man go before him and make sure the roads were ready for him. I mean, here the big king, his chariot is going to be going down the road. What, you can't have a big boulder in the middle of the road, right? The king can't get around it. You can't have a big pothole in the middle of the road, some big valley, the road washed out. You've got to make sure the road's prepared. And so the king would always send an advance man before him and say, prepare the way before me, prepare the road, because I'm going to go somewhere and you've got to make sure I get there. John the Baptist says, I'm the forerunner of the Messiah. I'm the one who's going to prepare the road before him. And so if there's a big obstacle in the way, I'm going to take it out of the way. I'm going to prepare the road. I'm going to make the road straight. I'm going to make it ready for the coming of the Messiah. That was the whole ministry of John the Baptist, to, to build a road, to build a road so that people could come to Jesus and so that Jesus could come to people. So how did he build this road? What did he do? Well, you notice it there in verse 4, didn't you? John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now notice this. He baptized and he preached repentance. Well, what does it mean to baptize somebody? Well, when you baptize somebody, the, the word literally means to immerse them. That's what the word baptize means. It means to overwhelm them or to immerse them. It wasn't sprinkling. I don't want to make a big hobby horse about this point, but baptism isn't sprinkling. That's not how John did it. I say this in particular because though I didn't watch it, somebody told me about it, the, the recent miniseries they had on television about the life of Jesus, and somebody told me at the scene where John was baptizing him, when it came time for Jesus to be baptized, that they, that they go and they, they scooped up water, John did, and he kind of poured it on the head of Jesus, that he didn't immerse him. Friends, that's no baptism at all. If John would have done that to Jesus when Jesus was baptized, Jesus would have stunned back and say, forget that, dunk me under. 
let's go, I'm going, to, let's give me a proper baptism. Now, they probably didn't do it that way in the, in the Hollywood production of it, just because they didn't want to go to makeup again. It would have been all wet and everything. So, well, let's just do it this way, and we'll, we'll make it easy here on the staff, on the production crew. No, baptism means to be immersed. And so the idea here is that people would come and, and John would persuade them to repent. And John would tell them, you need to repent because the Messiah is coming. And people would say, I want to repent. I'm going to confess my sin. And John would say, well, can then confess your sin? The people would say, well, I've sinned in this and this area, and I want to repent of it now. And John would say, great, as a sign of your repentance, you come right now into the river, and I'm going to dunk you under the water, and you're going to come up and you're going to be cleansed. Isn't that a beautiful thing? A beautiful thing for, for a couple reasons. First of all, the fact that the people were baptized showed that they didn't just wish they could be cleansed or wish they could repent. They actually did something about it. Isn't that where we fail so often? Oh, we wish things could be different. I wish I could be right with God. I wish I could come back to the Lord. I wish I could walk with the Lord. And you know what the Lord says to you today? He says, stop wishing and do it. Come on, you can do it. I put it in front of you right now. You don't have to wish about it. I can work this in your life. It can really happen for you. Come, come and do something about it. See, But a lot of times it's easier to wish we could be right with God than to get down and have a time of prayer with the Lord every day, right? To wish we could be right with God instead of opening up the Bible and spending time with the Lord and His Word every day. Wishing can sometimes satisfy the desire for actually doing. Well, John wouldn't allow that. John said, no more wishing about repentance. If you want to repent, you come down here in the river, and I'm going to dunk you under. And the other thing that was beautiful about this is that this was not an unheard of practice in Israel. Did you know that they actually had a ceremonial washing in Israel where they would dunk people underwater? But do you know who it was reserved for? For Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. In other words, here you are, you're a pagan Gentile. And you say, I want to become a Jewish person. They say, okay, great. There's these ceremonies you have to go through, and then finally, we're going to immerse you under the water, and you're going to come up, and then you're going to be a Jewish person. So do you realize what it meant for these Jewish people to come and to submit to baptism? They were essentially saying, I'm as bad as a Gentile. I'll come and I'll submit to baptism because I want to be right with God. And why did they want to be right with God? Because John's message echoed out through those barren hills of the Judean wilderness. And the message was, the Messiah is coming. Get ready for him. Get ready for him. Might I remind you that that was really the essence of John's message. The essence of John's message was not, you're a sinner, you need to repent. That was not the heart of it. The heart of John's message was, the Messiah is coming, you have to get ready for him. And then people would ask, well, how do I get ready? And John would say, I'm glad you asked. You're a sinner, now you need to repent. But you see, the real essence of the message was, Jesus is coming, you need to get ready for him. Now, as we look at John baptizing people, verses 4 and 5, again, it says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And all the land of Judea and and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. What a beautiful scene that is, isn't it? These people streaming, making the walk that would be hours long from the major population centers to this desolate region of the, of the Judean wilderness. And they're coming these long distances in the hot weather, traveling these arduous roads. And when they would finally get there, 
Then a guy would yell at them and, and tell them that the Messiah was coming and you need to repent, and they would do it. And there was such a beautiful response. Sometimes people wonder if Christian baptism is the same as John's baptism. Well, the answer to that question is yes and no. It is like John's baptism. I'm babbling on here. It is like John's baptism in this sense, in that Christian baptism is also a demonstration of repentance and the desire to be cleansed from sin, right? But it's also more than John's baptism. It's more than John's baptism because the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans that baptism is also an illustration of what happens when we came to Jesus Christ. In other words, we were identified with Jesus spiritually in his death and resurrection so that we died with Jesus and were buried under the water. And then when we come up out of the water, it's like we come up out of the grave and we're risen to new life in Jesus Christ. And that's something that was not an aspect of John's baptism, but it is an aspect of Christian baptism. Here's my question. Have you been baptized? If you haven't been baptized, my question is, well, first of all, have you given your life to Jesus Christ? And if you have given your life to Jesus Christ and you haven't been baptized, my question is, well, why not? You know, many people avoid or postpone baptism because they don't feel worthy to be baptized. I find that to be a very common sort of, sort of train of thought. They think, well, you know, I'm not... I'm not spiritual enough yet. I need to wait until I'm spiritual. I need to wait until I'm, I'm walking. The bottom line is, you don't have to be spiritual enough. These people were confessing their sin. You just need to come and say, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I want to give my life for him. And you can be baptized. Matter of fact, we're going to have a baptism here next Sunday. Next Sunday, when we have our, our church barbecue, we're going to bring out a, a, a jacuzzi here, right here at the church, and baptize people. <laughs> well, why not, huh? We'll do it here when everybody's here. So everybody can grab a soda and sit around the jacuzzi and watch people get baptized. <laughs> It'll be a great time together. Well, John the Baptist's message, it met with a wonderful response. But look at it here. It's amazing that it met with such a wonderful response when you consider who the messenger was. Look at verse 6. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Isn't this amazing? If you were going to pick an advance man for yourself to go and represent yourself and prepare your way, would you pick a guy like this? A guy who wore strange clothes. And you think two things about camel's hair. First of all, you think about the texture of it. Smooth? No way. Rough? Coarse? Second thing about can you imagine the smell? Camels don't smell all that great, folks. And here he's wearing this camel's hair garment and then the big leather belt around and then it says finally there in verse 6, he ate locusts and wild honey. This was a man of the earth. This was a man who, well, a man probably who didn't have a lot of friends, right? You can just imagine that. And here he is, this, this, this wild-eyed man. I've seen movies about the life of Jesus, and you know I've never seen one that I think captures John the Baptist the way I think he was. This man must have looked strange. Living out in the desert, it isn't exactly a beauty treatment for you, right? This guy would have had long, stringy, wild hair. He would have looked strong and, and, you know, hardened from the desert. I think probably the most interesting aspect John the Baptist, as I think about, he must have had piercing eyes. Can you imagine what it must have looked like for him to look at you? And this is what it's recorded, he said in one of the other Gospels. He said, you family of snakes, who told you to come and repent? You're like, wow, I'm, I'm sorry, mister, just whatever you say. What a man of authority. What an amazing man. 
It's not the kind of guy we would have picked. You know, in the spirit of today's age, John's ministry would have been very different. First of all, he wouldn't start out in the wilderness. Come on, go to a major population center. Get around where there's a lot of people, a lot of media, a lot of attention. Go to a place where there's a nice hotel, for heaven's sakes. Secondly, he wouldn't dress funny. He'd have on a nice designer suit, right? He'd look nice. He'd look good. You'd look at John the Baptist and you'd say, success. That's what he'd do if he's ministering with the spirit of today's age. People looked at John the Baptist back in his day and they said, strange. You wouldn't preach such a straightforward message if you were doing the ministry of John the Baptist today. You'd kind of shade it. You'd say, the Messiah might be coming. And it might be a good idea if some of you kind of wanted to get ready for him, maybe. No, no, that's not John the Baptist. He said, he's coming, I know it, you know it, get ready for it now. And John the Baptist, he wouldn't just go out in the wilderness and cry out. No, if he was ministering in the spirit of the age today, he'd use marketing surveys and focus groups and all these other kind of tools, and, and, and he'd hone his message, hone his presentation. Thank God John wasn't motivated by the spirit of today's age. He was motivated by the spirit of God. And look at what his message was. It's in verse 7. And he preached saying, There comes one after me who's mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In this glorious, the, the, the ministry of John the Baptist was all about looking at Jesus. He said, It's not about me. What I really want to tell you about the one who's coming after me. I'm just the forerunner. You need to have your eyes on the one who's coming after me. And let me tell you about the one who's coming after me, John says. He says, I'm not worthy to loose his sandal strap. I'm not worthy to bow down and untie his dirty sandals. I'm not worthy to even do that. I have to say, when I listen to that kind of, read that kind of remark, my first reaction is kind of cynical. It sounds like that kind of fake, blah, 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 kind of spiritual talk that people do. You know, I'm not worthy to lick his boots. You know, the person doesn't really feel that way. If you're actually, okay, well then come on down and lick my boots. Oh, well, they would never do it in a million years. Because it's just talk. It's just blah, blah, blah talk. That wasn't the case. You know, John the Baptist is referring to a custom that was present in that day. In that day, it was not an unusual thing for a master to have disciples. And he would train his disciples and teach his disciples. And so he did a valuable service for his disciples. But the disciples were also expected to take care of the master and to serve him. And so they sort of had protocols between the master and the disciples, what could be expected and what couldn't. One of the things that the Jewish rabbis laid down was too much for the master to expect of his disciples. They said, no way, master, you can't demand this of your disciples. You cannot. They said, a master or a teacher has no right to expect his disciples to stoop down and unloose the, lats, the latchet on his sandals. That's too much. To take off his sandals, to wash his feet, it's too much. He can't expect them to do that. John knew that that was too much to expect. But John says, no, that is too much for me. That's too much honor for me to do that for the sake of Jesus. He's drawing on that same custom that was there in that day. 
And so here, John's pointing towards Jesus, and he even says in verse 8, I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In other words, what I'm doing, it's just a prelude. It's just a preview of this greater work that Jesus is going to do. Now, John's baptism could demonstrate repentance, but it couldn't truly cleanse someone from sin because the finished work of Jesus hadn't happened on the cross yet. No, it looked forward to that finished work. Here's John. You can just picture the scene, can't you? There he is out there in the Judean wilderness. You'd kind of walk from a distance and you'd see this great crowd of people. You'd see the dust kicked up and all that. And you hear this booming voice of somebody yelling out and preaching to the people. You know he'd be screaming just because he'd have to be heard. There's this wild-eyed man screaming to the people out there in the wilderness until one day, look at it there, verse 9, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. A lot of times we read that, we scratch our heads and we say, now wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought I knew what John's baptism was about. I thought John's baptism was about confessing your sin and demonstrating repentance, right? You say, right. Well, I thought Jesus didn't have any sin to confess. I thought Jesus didn't need to demonstrate any repentance. And that's correct also. They say, well, then why was Jesus baptized? I could understand why Jesus would come and just sort of look approvingly on what John is doing and yell, now, John, good job there. Keep up the good work. Very excellent, young man. Keep going now. I'm the Messiah that you're preparing the way for. Yes, yes, go, go on forward. No, but that wasn't it at all. No, it was important that Jesus be baptized and be baptized for really two great reasons. First of all, the great reason that Jesus was baptized was so that he could be identified with sinful man. Isn't that amazing? Jesus Christ, the glorious Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, enthroned in glory, and he's going to come down to earth to accomplish the salvation of man. Now, if you or I were doing it, I don't think we would have done it the way that Jesus did it. We would have looked for a way to avoid this radical identification with sinful man. So the first thing that I would have scratched off the list was this business of being conceived in a virgin's womb and being born and then growing up as a little baby and then being raised as a child. I would have said, forget it. If I'm coming to the Messiah as the earth, I'm coming full grown. And you've seen the sci-fi movies, right? That's what they do. They transport somebody across time, right? and they just appear as a full-grown person. I mean, if you had a choice about it, whether to come as a little baby, to go through the whole birth thing by choice, no, thank you. No, you'd much rather come as an adult. But Jesus said, no, I want to identify with sinful man in every way. I want to be able to look at every sinner who's ever walked this earth and say, I know what you've gone through. I was raised as a child, just like you. I've been through the same struggles. I've had the same temptations. I can identify with you. Because when Jesus hung on the cross, that's what he was doing. He was identifying with sinful man. And God the Father poured out the wrath, the judgment that you and I deserved. He poured it out upon the one who was identifying with us. And so what Jesus is doing here is just consistent with all of his ministry. He's saying, are sinners being baptized? Then I want to identify with sinners, even though I'm not one. I'll step forward and I'll undergo baptism. I will identify myself with sinful man. So friends, no, Jesus didn't have to be baptized. He chose to. But he also didn't have to die on a cross in our place. He chose to. He's identifying himself with sinful man. Now I said there's two reasons why Jesus was baptized. 
One was to identify with sinful man. The other reason is to be identified to sinful man. And this is what we see in verses 10 and 11. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now that identified Jesus to everybody who was present, right? John the Baptist knew. Everybody looking on, they knew that this man was different. They'd say, you know what? This didn't happen when Fred was baptized just a few minutes before. There's something different about this guy. He goes down in the water, and then when he comes up, what happens? Notice it there in verse 10. It says, immediately the, 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 the heavens parted. The, the word there in the Greek is very strong. It means that the heavens, the sky was torn in two. And you ask me, what did that look like? And I say, I have no idea. Maybe it was like a thunderclap of lightning coming down from the sky. Maybe it was just the strangest phenomenon you ever saw with clouds and light. and, and refra- I don't know. But whatever it was, people looked at it and they said, it's like the heavens are being torn in two. And when the heavens were torn in two, then look what happened there in verse 10. Then he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Now, wait, what's this business like a dove? Well, first of all, it wasn't just like a funny little cloud over Jesus. Luke chapter 3, verse 22 says, The Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. In bodily form. We don't know exactly what that means, but when you looked at it, it looked like a dove. Yet everybody knew that it was the Spirit of God coming upon Jesus and coming upon him in a unique way. I say, well, why is the Holy Spirit associated with a dove? Why pick a dove? I mean, kind of a wimpy animal, right? Why not an eagle? Why not, you know, something strong? Something... Well, doves are, are wonderful for two reasons. First of all, Back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it talks about the brooding of the Spirit over the waters at creation, it suggested to ancient rabbis a dove brooding over her flock. And so the image of the Spirit with a dove was present in ancient Judaism. But there's another reason, too, is that doves are gentle, non-threatening birds. They don't resist, and they don't fight back. A dove represents the gentle faithful work of the Holy Spirit of God. Do you see that picture? And so here, if you want to go back, I was speaking before about cathedrals in Europe and such. Another thing that they have in so many cathedrals in Europe is they have uh, the pulpit, and the pulpit is actually raised up over the audience, and they would do this for acoustical purposes. And then the, the preacher would climb up into the pulpit, and there would almost always be like a lid or a covering over the top of the pulpit. And if you look up under the top of that covering and look up what's under there, almost every time you'll see the figure of a white dove painted above that. And the picture is, as the preacher is there preaching, a dove is right above him. The Holy Spirit's there anointing the preacher as the word goes forth. This image has been repeated throughout the the art and the understanding of Christians. So here, do you see the scene here? Verses 10 and 11. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then the voice came from heaven. Then the voice comes. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Can you imagine how everybody looks around? Did you hear that? What, what was that? 
very rare in the scriptures where God speaks audibly with a voice from heaven. But this is one of those glorious occasions. And I want you to notice that he says two things about the son. Number one, he says, I love him. Did you see that in there? This is my beloved son. That's what it means. This is the son that I love. This is my loved son. I love this son of God. Secondly, what does God the Father say? In whom I am well pleased. It's kind of like the words that Jesus said that he'll speak to those faithful servants of his at the end of the age. Well done, you good and faithful servant. Wouldn't it be glorious to hear that from the Lord? To to hear the Lord say to you, you are my beloved son. I love you and I'm well pleased with you. You know what the great thing is? is that as we make our place and find our identity in Jesus Christ, that's what the Lord says to you. So, well, no, the Lord would never say that to me. I love you, and I'm well pleased with you. Because you you think God's always annoyed with you. You think God's always irritated with you. You know, when you think of God up in heaven, you think of of a stern old man with his arms folded, and he was sort of tapping his foot, and he's saying, one more time. One more time, and that's it. That's not God. My friends, he he loves you, and he's well pleased with you. Why? Because you're so great? Because I'm so great? No, no, not at all. It's because we find our identity in Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus is beloved. Jesus is well-pleasing to God the Father, so if we're in him, so are we. So that's what we endeavor to do every day, to live our lives in him. That's why we pray. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we want to walk with Him and live with Him every day, because we want to be found in Christ, because that's the place where we receive His love. That's the place where we know that we're well-pleasing to Him. So think about this very strange scene. You know what I find amazing about this whole scene of Jesus' baptism? Is how you have a very humble scene, and then a scene of great glory. I mean, look at the humble scene, verse 9. It came to pass in those days that Jesus... Well, right there, that's a pretty humble name. You know, when a movie star picks a name for themselves and they have the ability to choose a name for themselves, they don't pick a common name. You're not going to find a movie star who, who, who takes their name and changes it from something really striking, really glorious, and they say, well, I'll take the name uh, Bill Smith. No, they don't want that name because it's anonymous. It's a, you want a name that's striking. You want a name that stands out, a name that people will remember. Jesus was a very common name. In that day, a lot of people were named Jesus. They'd say, Jesus, oh, another one. Well, you know, in our group, we've got 15 people named Jesus. So, common name. Nothing remarkable about that. Notice the next thing it says in verse 9. He came from Nazareth. Jesus didn't come from a very fashionable, from a very exciting, from a very vibrant place. He came from a little hole-in-the-wall village, a despised village. Matter of fact, you remember what one of Jesus' apostles heard when he first said that Je- when he first heard, I should say, that Jesus came from Nazareth. He said, "Can anything good come from Nazareth? That little hole in the wall?" So you have a humble name, a humble city, then you have a humble region, Galilee. Now, Galilee is a nice place, but it wasn't seen as very spiritual. The Jews who lived in and around Jerusalem in the area of Judea looked down their noses at the Jews who lived in the area of Galilee because so many Gentiles lived in Galilee. And they called Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. It wasn't the Bible Belt. 
And so here you've got, you got Jesus, a humble name, coming from a humble city, from a humble region, and then notice, he's baptized. That's a humble thing to do, right? To identify with sinful man. And then he's baptized by who? Look at verse 9. Baptized by John. Not only are you baptized, but you might have thought Jesus would say, look, I'll be baptized, but not by this really weird fellow. Can't we get somebody else? No, I'll submit the baptism by John. Then finally, even the place where he was baptized was humble. Look at it there. Baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, have you seen some of the mighty rivers of the world? The Columbia, the Mississippi, the Colorado River in some places. Glorious, strong, mighty rivers, impressive rivers. The Jordan is nothing like that. The Jordan is a pretty lame-looking river. It's muddy. It crawls along at a slow pace. The only time it looks any good is when it's at flood stage. And so here, when John was baptizing people, we know it wasn't flood stage, otherwise they'd be swept down the river. There'd be no place to baptize. He's saying, come down into this muddy, despised river and come and I'll dunk you under. A lot of people just say, no thanks, can't we find some place cleaner? Jesus, no, he submitted to it. So you have all these humble beginnings, a, a, a humble name, a, a humble city, a humble region, a humble thing to do to be baptized, a humble uh, man to do it under, that's John, and a humble place to be baptized in the Jordan. But then you have tremendous glory. The heavens part, the spirit descends like a dove, and then the voice comes from heaven, and then it shouts out, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I mean, what could there be more glorious than have God the Father praise and affirm you publicly? See, that's how God likes to do it. He likes to take these very humble, weak packages and display the strength of his glory through them. Now, that should change our perspective entirely. You know, the thinking of our world, the thinking of the spirit of our age is that nothing succeeds like success, right? And so if you want to be successful, you've got to have the successful image and, and put that out. And maybe in some of the ways of the world, that works, but not before God. God honors the humble and the weak and those who, who are lowly in heart. God says, I give grace to the humble. I'll resist the proud, but I'll give my grace to the humble. Isn't that beautiful? And so maybe some of us, we've been trying to be something we're not before God. Do you ever find yourself trying to be or trying to look like a better Christian than you actually are? You, you kind of want to have an image that you're a better Christian, that you're a more faithful follower of Jesus Christ than you really are. You kind of have the feeling that right now, if the veil could be taken away from your life, people would look and say, that's one loser Christian right here in front of me. <laughs> Maybe that's you today. Well, you know what? If it is, praise God. Because God wants to meet you in the humbleness of where you're at. Weak, lowly, a flat-out loser as a Christian. And God says, I want to display some wonderful glory in the midst of that weakness. You just need to come to me in the midst of the weakness. Stop trying to put on the front. Stop trying to put on the image. Stop trying to act like something you're not. Lord, you, you, you talk that way among the world, among the co-workers, you use that language, go ahead and use it at church. Go ahead. I mean, at least you'd be consistent. Either use language at church at work, or language at work at church, but just be consistent, be the same thing. 
God can meet you either place. If you be real before him, God can take your weakness, God can take your humility and make something glorious about it. Well, we started off this morning talking about who Jesus is. And in these 11 verses that we've covered, I think we've seen something wonderful about who Jesus is. Let's take a quick review. Well, verse 1, Mark told us that Jesus is the Son of God, right? He's the Son of God, God the Son. Secondly, the prophets said, and this is in verses 3, that, that Jesus is Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. Well, whose way was being prepared? It was the way of Jesus. Thirdly, John the Baptist said that Jesus is the one after me who is mightier than I. That's who Jesus is. The one after John who is even greater than John. And then finally, if you won't listen to any of those, listen to the fourth one. Verse 11 This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You know, if God the Father says it, that settles it. Jesus is the Son of God. It's we give our life, our attention, and find our identity in Him. God does tremendous things in us and through us. Let's pray and ask the Lord to seal this together in our hearts this morning. Father, we're excited about coming to the Gospel of Mark. And Lord, not the least of it is we're excited because we know that we're going to find Jesus here. So we ask, God, that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly than we've ever seen him before. We want to know Jesus. We want to live with Jesus. We want to hear Jesus. We want to see Jesus. And we know that our lives will be transformed. Lord, just as much as John the Baptist said, Jesus is coming, prepare the way, we want to hear that word today. And I, I pray, God, for anybody here this morning who needs to get something out of the way, to be prepared for the coming of Jesus. Then, Lord, help them to do it. Help them to prepare that way, to get it out of the way, to move it beyond, so that they can be ready for Jesus and Jesus can have free reign in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.